you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's passage comes from Genesis 39, and I will be reading the entire chapter. That's found on page 33 of your pew Bibles. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left this garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Eric. Wasn't that amazing music? That was great, wasn't it? I tried to clap, and no one else wants to. That's for them. Um, So, 
when we clap, we're not saying we think you're sinless and without fault. We're just saying thank you and praise God, right? That's, what, that's why we clap in church. We don't clap in church because we're trying to approve of them or tell them we think they're good or that they're looking for our approval. It's just a way that we say thank you to God and that was great. And that's why we say amen as well. It's not because I think you're wonderful, amen. It's because amen. Yes, and you don't have to say either of those things because I'm British and I won't. And, um, you know, Rochelle, my wife, is actually a drummer. It's a little secret. We try to keep it as far away from public notice as possible. But uh, she's actually a rock drummer. Um, in, not recently, uh, but, um, uh, uh, you know, she has played the, um, the rock drums. And, um, and she likes to laugh whenever I start to clap because I cannot clap in time. I cannot. It's just impossible. Um, and there's something hardwired. I think it's about being from London. Uh, keep the Bible open at Genesis chapter 39. We will get to that in a moment. I've just got one other little sort of preemptive word before we get into it. Next week, I will not be here because I will be in London. And I'm preaching at a church in London, and then I'm preaching at a conference on the Monday, and then I'll be back the following Sunday, um, and there's a little conference we've got here on the church on the Wednesday, so I'm sort of, you know, doing this the next week, so I appreciate your prayers. And next Sunday, we've got a guest preacher. Uh, His name is Dr. Greg Thornbury, and Greg is a friend of mine and uh, is the president of uh, the King's College in New York City. And uh, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, He has an amazing set of bow ties. And um, he was called America's first hipster president. So you're going to have someone a lot more cool next week. You're not sure whether to laugh at that or not, because you don't know whether you're going to offend me or not, but it's fine. Um, Right. Genesis 39. Let me set uh, this story into the broader story of uh, the book of Genesis, but really the Bible. Obviously, right at the heart of this particular chapter is a temptation that Joseph resisted. And because it is such an extraordinary story... Plus, it is a temptation that many of us face today in one way or another. It's easy just to grab hold of that part of the story and not understand it in its broader narrative structure. And the reason why that's important is because there is a solution to the temptation that Joseph faced that is here in this story that the narrator, the author of Genesis, is urging us to see and to grasp. So in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, Genesis means beginning, God, through his word, is telling a story, and it is a cosmic story. So the world was made by God in the beginning, and he blessed it and announced it as good. We, in our humanity, rebelled against that blessing, and curse was pronounced by God on all of creation. 
And we live today under that curse. The world is not the way we think it should be. We are not the way we think we should be. We sense that the universe is, as it were, out of joint. As one poet put it, looking at nature, it is red in tooth and claw. Or as one uh, American comedian said, when I look at nature, I just see one big restaurant, one thing eating another. That is the reality we face Uh, We are more polite about it in human society, but there is this constant jostling and aggression and things are not the way they should be. But God has a plan. It's a cosmic plan. Genesis chapter 12, he picks Abram and he announces a blessing that will be through Abram and to his seed. And that blessing is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and the blessing to all nations that was announced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And of course, the Bible is a collection of books written by human authors as they're inspired by God's Spirit, but it also has an author, capital A, that is God. And so there is a unity to this collection of books as well. And so when you get into the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you find it picks up all these themes of blessing from way back in the garden, the Garden of Eden. And now there's a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And all the blessing that was intended in Genesis chapter 1, verse, chapter one and 2 is now fulfilled in this cosmic realm of universal, as it were, blessing in God's presence. And so that is the big story. And in Genesis, we're having the beginning of that story, the foundation of that story. And Joseph, the ark of Joseph that we're in now, as we're looking at the Joseph story in, in College Church over the, the last couple of weeks or so, in the next couple of weeks. In the ark of Joseph, Joseph has been sold into slavery. He's gone to Egypt. And what we notice is because Joseph is this righteous man on whom is the blessing of God, we're told in verse 5 of this story that on account of Joseph, God blessed his master. Now think about that. Here we have a non-Israelite Egyptian man, a slave owner who had bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites into slavery, And yet, because of God's plan that through this people there will be blessing to all peoples, even as a slave owner, he, as it were, has the crumbs that fall off the table of blessing. And as it were, the beginning of God's cosmic plan that all peoples be blessed finally through Christ is starting to emerge and open up. Now, how easy it would have been for Joseph to have missed all of that. In fact, I think in this part of the story, the passage we're looking at, chapter 39, there are, uh, there are repeated hints that have been very easy for a person in Joseph's situation to think quite the reverse. That is to think that his life was merely a piece of flotsam and jetsam floating on the currents of destiny and fate. It's a little word, hand. It's 
not always there in the translation, but it is there in the Hebrew. Verse 1, Joseph was bought out of the hand of the Ishmaelites. Verse 4, everything was put now into Joseph's hand. Verse 12, Joseph left his garment in her hand. Verse 22, the keeper of the prison put everything in Joseph's hand. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison didn't pay anything, attention to anything that was in Joseph's hand. In the original, it's very clear there's a repeated emphasis on this hand, the hand of destiny, under whose hand? And Joseph was, as it were, first sold into slavery under now the Ishmaelite's hand, now under Potiphar's hand. For a moment, he has some sort of authority as a senior slave, as it were, given under his hand, and then now he's under the hand of this malicious woman, and now he's under the hand of the prison guard, and now he's given authority in some way as a prisoner over other prisoners. It's first down, then up, and then down, then up, and he's just floating around, apparently. And apparently the very reverse of the blessing of God resides upon Joseph. He's in slavery in Egypt, a long way away from the promised land, a long way away from God's blessing. And how easy it would have been for him not to think that God was still with him. To think that God had got it all wrong. And how easy that is for us to believe today. And the reason why I'm putting this in this broader context, and I'm going to break down the passage and we're going to walk through it now. The reason why I put it in this broader context is I want you to understand the way to resist the kind of temptation that Joseph faced is to find the resources, the power in the presence of the person of God and his blessing for you and for the world around. That is that your life has a purpose, a meaning, a true destiny. Whether apparently it seems like that right now. The passage is uh, simply divided into three basic movements. First, verses 1 to 6, God is with Joseph, it's emphasized. And then it returns to that again at the end, verses 21 to 23. Again, it's emphasized, God is with Joseph. And the middle is Joseph's faithfulness in the face of temptation. First, we see Joseph as the person whom God is with, verses 1 to 6. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. What does the Bible mean by success? Well, this success meant that Joseph moved from being a slave in the fields to a more respected slave in the house of his master, verse 2, and then to being put in charge of that house, verse 4, and then to being put in charge of everything that the master owned, verse 4. The Lord blessed the Egyptian for Joseph's sake, verse 5. The Lord was with Joseph and granted him success. Now, if I was to tell you today that, the, that a certain man God was with and God had granted him success, what would you think? I guarantee you it would not be this. You would probably think about the size of his house. Maybe if you're a Christian and in evangelical circles, you think about the scale of his ministry. How many people were buying his books, how large the crowd was that he spoke to. 
and yet God is with Joseph as a slave. And for Joseph's sake, the slave owner is even blessed. In other words, the blessing of God is not a finishing thing, it is a flowing thing. That God blesses us so that we might be a blessing. God blessed Abraham so that he might be a blessing to all nations. Or as Jesus puts it, whoever believes in me has a spring of living water that wells up within them to eternal life. Those today who preach a message that the blessing and success and prosperity of God is a bigger car or a bigger house or more money have fundamentally misunderstood what it means to be blessed. What it means to be blessed is to be like Joseph and to be a channel of God's blessing to others, to serve in the stars ministry, to serve in the children's ministry. That's how you know when someone's blessed. Because other people around them benefit. The blessing of God is not to store up wealth. It is to be generous in time and in character and in every way. I was looking on YouTube recently at some of the scandals of the prosperity gospel preachers in America, and it was all I could do not to vomit. The blessing of God is the presence of God. The Lord is with Joseph. And the presence of God becomes a channel that blesses others with His presence too. If you have the blessing of Abraham that is fulfilled in Christ, you will be a blessing to others, to your neighborhood. What did Jesus say? Light of the world, salt of the earth. That's who you are, my disciples. He didn't say, put your light under a bowl and keep it all to yourself. No, you're a light to the world. You're salt of the earth. You're blessed to be a channel of blessing. Such was Joseph. And I wonder whether that is you. Are you seeking God? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, as Jesus put it. Are you someone who knows that God is with them? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Really, truly. Well, God was with Joseph. I trust he's with us too. And I trust he will be with you this morning as you put your trust in him even as I speak. Well, now we come to the temptation, verses 7 to 20. And as I said at the beginning, it is a most extraordinary story. Uh, We are told, as the story bridges from the first section at the end of verse 6 to this next middle section about the temptation, that Joseph was handsome and good-looking. It's a very specific phrase, I think. 
Um, Joseph's mother, Rachel, is uh, the only other person in the Bible who is also described as both beautiful in face and also in form. In other words, Joseph was a good-looking man. And the eyes of uh, his master's wife began to follow, begin to follow him around, verse 7. And she propositioned him. Lie with me. Now you wonder, don't you, when you read that, whether actually she said rather more. It seems a little bit of a short proposition, you know, hello, lie with me. I mean, you know, presumably there was a little bit more than that, you would think. Presuming there was some kind of tea up to the conversation. Hello, Joseph, you look handsome, you're a wonderful man. By the way, can you come, you know, help, you know. But maybe there wasn't. Maybe she tried the shocking direct approach. At any rate, uh, her brief proposition is contrasted with Joseph's lengthy refusal. One commentator puts it like this. Joseph's refusal is a voluble outpouring of language. It's full of repetitions which are both dramatically appropriate. As a loyal servant, he is emphatically protesting the moral scandal that he proposed, dramatically appropriate, and thematically pointed. Of course, the most thematically pointed aspect of this is how can I sin against God? For he is a person that God is with, and he understands the purpose of his life, to be blessed, to be a blessing. He lives, as it were, in the face of God, and he knows that no sin is hidden from the eyes of God. Well, in this voluble outpouring of language, he is quite carefully making a series of appeals to this woman. He knows the danger that he is in. She is powerful over him, and as the old saying is, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, which is not only an exaggeration, it's unworthy of the doctrine of hell. But he is in a difficult situation. So first he appeals to the respect and responsibility which his master and hers has invested in him, verse 8. Second, he appeals to the special relationship that his master has with his wife, verse 9. And third, he appeals, as I say, to God, end of verse 9. In other words, to do as she asked would be to sin against his employment, be to sin against her husband, and most of all would be to sin against God. Well, you notice that he's very clever in his use, not of the covenant word for God here, Yahweh or the Lord. He uses a more general word for God, which the Egyptian woman would or could have recognized as a morally forceful argument. So in our, se- in our terms, when he's, when he's d- conversing with a non-Christian woman who is propositioning him, he doesn't say to her, look, you know, what would Jesus think about this? Because that non-Christian woman doesn't care what Jesus thinks about us, about that. But many, many people today, even those who do not come to church, even those who do not believe in Jesus, recognize that there might well be some reality that is bigger and beyond them, some reality after the grave, some person that they will have to encounter. And so he says, what would God think about that? He is uh, very careful in his protestation. Now, 
I think it is worth just taking a moment to help us with such resistance of temptation. What does the Bible say about how to resist sexual temptation? How does it instruct us to pursue purity? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that purity is to will one thing. In other words, the resistance to sexual temptation is first of all to love God and to know that God is with you and have a pure desire for Him. Uh, Job put it like this, I made a covenant with my eyes. Well, she had not done that, had she? Her eyes followed him and looked him up and down. We are not to be like that. We are to fill our mind with truth so there's little room for lies. The truth that we are blessed and that God has a plan for us and that uh, he has a cosmic plan of uh, true prosperity and nothing that we need will finally be lacking. Um, We are busy in God's service, so we are not idle and allowing idols to fill the space. I think that's a very important word for us today. People keep on telling me how busy they are, and I wonder how many hours they're spending watching Netflix. If you're filling your mind with an entertainment, your inner person will not have the kind of strength that we see in Joseph. And it can, and I've passed already come across people for whom this is true, it can well lead to a moment of disaster. Watch your leisure time. Some leisure time is good, of course. Nothing wrong with watching a movie every now and then. That's fine. But do not be so idle that you are generating idols. Know that God is with you. The presence of God is the way to have the purity of God. Now, we're going to end with this as we go through the sermon, but I think it is worth also, at this point, putting a word in here to describe the difference between condemnation and conviction. Many of you are sitting out there going, I'm now feeling really condemned. But if you're a Christian, there is no condemnation. You cannot be separated from the love of God. And again, we'll circle back to that at the end. But for you to receive conviction, you need to realize it's not condemnation. The devil wants you to feel condemned. The Spirit wants you to be convicted. Very, very different. Condemnation is saying, you no longer belong to me. Get out of here. If you're a Christian, that will never happen to you. No one can take you out of his hands. But the Spirit mercifully does convict us. That will not change your relationship with God when you are under conviction. You are his child. 
and that is consistent and constant. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But because he loves you like a father, he does sometimes convict. Receive it as a mercy, as a sign that actually he is your father and does love you. The people that pastorally I am most worried about in this area are not those who sense conviction. And not even, if you understand me rightly, and I don't have time to pass this out in all its details, but not even those who are sinners, for we are all sinners. Martin Luther, in one of his letters, was uh, asked by someone saying, can I come and visit you in, uh, you know, in, in his church and in his town where he's working in Wittenberg? Can I come and visit you? And Martin Luther replied, yes, come and see. We are all sinners. What I'm scared about is the person who doesn't care. The hard-hearted person. The person who says they're not a sinner. If you're under conviction, good. It's a sign that God loves you. That he's your father. That he wants you. I think also at this point is worth bringing in the big guns. And that is to say that one day you and I will have to stand before the Lord. That we are not, because of the fall, those who are going to escape death. And it is important, I think, particularly in this area, that we school ourselves to think what it would be like on our deathbed and beyond what it would be like to actually face God. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? When you see things right, that is not an extraordinary act of bravery. It is a very logical resistance. And then finally, of course, flee, or Psalm 119 puts it, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. John Bunyan said, either sin will keep you from the word or the word will keep you from sin. How are your quiet times? Well, he resists her, but uh, she will not be put off, and she has authority, and so she continues to pursue him, verse 10, to bug him. Uh, This time she uh, changes uh, her approach to him, saying, come and just lie beside uh, me or beside her, Uh, I think probably hoping to get him to concede to just a little cuddle in the idea that one thing might lead to another. And then again, verse 12, she takes once more the direct approach, lie with me. She's caught him alone in the house. He's doing his work. She is lying in wait for him. There's a suggestion, actually, of violence, of grabbing the garment and it being left in her hand. Uh, He most likely would have worn what uh, people in those days did wear, which is a tunic, like a long T-shirt, and mid-length shorts. So to grab that would have taken some aggression. Well, he flees. 
He has the character to resist that whatever she does, it is nothing beside sinning against God. And so he runs out of there. Of course, now she's in trouble because uh, he's run out of the house in a sort of panic and she has his garment. So what's she going to do? Well, she turns it to her advantage. She acts quickly. First, she calls the men of the house and gives them a clever, appealing lie. Uh, Verse 14, look, he, that is the master, appealing to uh, their dislike of the boss, he, a Hebrew, appealing to their latent racism, a Hebrew, came into me to lie with me, almost certainly an innuendo for sexual intimacy, making it graphic for them. And then I cried out with a loud voice, and then he left the garment, reversing the details, keeping the details the same, but reversing their order, so fundamentally to change the whole picture. Very clever. Did he run out? Yes. Did he leave a garment? Yes. But not that way round. And then uh, she waits uh, for the master, having won over the support of the staff, and conducts a clever variation of the lie designed to appeal to her husband. She starts with the racism, the Hebrew. Can you hear that um, despisal? The Hebrew. Uh, Then reminds the master that Joseph is a mere slave. In other words, he can do whatever he likes with him. She insinuates that it's the master's fault, leveraging his guilt or shame, whom you brought among us. It's your fault. You brought him in. And again, makes the deed graphic to cause anger from her husband as he depicts it. He came into me to laugh at us, to laugh at me. In other words, insinuating that this sexual molestation, this sexual rape that she's accusing him of, was really just a sort of power game to despise her as an Egyptian aristocrat. This Hebrew slave has come to hate us and laugh at us. See? Well, of course, he's furious. This is the way your servant treated me. And he moves into action, though it is fascinating that uh, the, uh, the right legal response to the situation would have been to have Joseph killed, but he doesn't do that. He puts him in prison. And you wonder, don't you, whether Potiphar is not such a fool as perhaps he might look. In other words, you wonder whether he thinks that his wife is the kind of woman that there might be another side to this story. At any rate, Joseph is sent to prison, and that prison is somehow under Potiphar's control as well. Uh, We know that from later in the story, chapter 40. And then this story returns to the same way it began. But the Lord was with Joseph, verses 21 to 23. He showed him love. 
the special covenant word for love, chesed. First introduced in the Bible in the story of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And Joseph, a man spurned sexually, resisting sexual temptation alone in prison, is a man that God is with and that God loves. And the prison is blessed for him too, because of him as well. How are we doing? 10.34. One of the uh, great proponents of sexual exploration that in many ways opened up the floodgates to the culture in which we live today, where you cannot drive down the highway without being bombarded with come lie with me. You cannot open an internet browser without being bombarded with come lie with me. One of the sort of pioneers of this thing that's happened to Western culture was a man named Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde was brilliant, probably a genius, extraordinary wordsmith, a character. The end of Oscar Wilde's life, and I've read one of the most well thought of biographies about it word for word so I'm not making it up this isn't like a you know internet quote or something like that at the end of Oscar Wilde's life he was alone ostracized in Paris a foreigner his friends had let him down and left him alone and he died in a way as those few left who came to sort of gather around him as deathbed experience, he died in a way that is so gross and so horrible that I don't think I can actually describe it to you from the pulpit. We are a people who are constantly under pressure from sexual temptation. Men and women, both, in different ways, but both. And the way to resist this temptation, to be, as it were, a Joseph who flees from the temptation, is to live in the face of God and to understand the blessing of God so that the temptation itself, the momentary pleasure itself seems so petty, so infinitely unimportant. By contrast, this cosmic vision that we get to be a part of because of God's plan to bless the whole universe through Abraham's seed fulfilled in Christ. Of course, we all fail. And the good news is that in this story, we are not really, as it were, Joseph. No, we're the people that Joseph is going to save. We're the uh, Judah, who in the previous chapter had committed all sorts of sexual immoralities. 
but a bigger and better Joseph would come. And through him, the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations that we can be a part of it. Yes, we sinners. And that's what I'm offering this morning. So will you pray with me? As you bow your heads, I want to put a few words into your mind that we've already sung. First, uh, this song, In Christ Alone. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. God is in charge and in control. And then second, you, God, will reign forever. Let your glory fill the earth. Our Lord, we thank you that that is your plan. Help us to... Rejoice in that plan this morning, and so be those who are faithful, and we thank you, Lord, that Christ has come to redeem us, and we put our trust in Him and embrace the conviction of His Spirit so that we might this morning start again and be faithful men and women of God people that you, Lord, are with and have blessed, that we might be a blessing to others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.